Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Vampire Night Season 1, Episodes 7, 8, and 9. I've got to admit, I didn't enjoy these episodes as much as I'd hoped. Episode 7 in particular, I think, is the first real clunker of the story. It's a flashback episode with almost nothing happening in the present day of the story, and it doesn't even impart any particularly interesting knowledge via the flashbacks. But I suppose I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get into this recap. Episode 7 opens with zero practicing shooting. Now, I'm very far from a gun person, but I'm pretty sure these two idiots should be wearing some kind of ear protection here, as the decibels of a gunshot can cause hearing loss, especially when in a room like this one. But that's not the big problem of the scene. No, the big problem is Zero himself. He is just such an asshole for no reason. Sick of having her band-aids pulled off by gropey vampires, Yuki has taken to wearing a proper bandage wrapped around her neck, and Zero is right out of the gate demanding that she take it off because it's quote, obvious. Like, fuck off? She can wear a goddamn target painted on her neck if she wants, you absolute asshole. Mind your business. But then he one-ups himself. It's the worst possible thing he could have said. Among the lines most guaranteed to make me hate him. Quote, you would have preferred Konami Curran to bite you, wouldn't you? I really hope I don't have to explain to anyone how insidious this is. Like, she's not even your girlfriend, bro. And this level of jealousy would be unreasonable and abusive even if she was your partner instead of your sort of sister. Again, vampire bites are a metaphor for sex and have been at least since Lefanu wrote Carmilla 150 years ago. This is essentially a man having sex with a woman and then accusing her afterward with no evidence and no provocation of thinking of some other guy. And that is your baggage, dude. Leave this girl alone. But no. Zero claims that he could taste it in her blood, which is such a batshit crazy lie that it would be funny if it wasn't so awful. You can taste it in her blood that she's thinking of another man? Do you hear yourself? These two dudes are just determined to be their worst possible selves. It's astounding. I'm astounded. From here, Yuki goes to her room and falls into a kind of nostalgia-meets-depression dream, through which the audience gets delivered a whole host of flashbacks. We see the day that Kaname brings her to Cayenne and explains that her memory is missing. She's frightened of him and his fangs, and so he leaves to go home to a place that Cayenne describes as a den of demons taking advantage of him since his parents died. Which is interesting, given that I remain convinced that Yuki is his sister. If he has lived with other vampires since the death of his parents, how did these other vampires not know of Yuki's existence? Did they think she had died? Was she kept a secret by the family? My pet theory at the moment is that Yuki was somehow turned into a human, perhaps temporarily, to hide her from some kind of a threat. And perhaps this hypothetical threat is the same threat that we will soon see coming for Zero, the mysterious pureblood vampire disguised as a transfer student named Maria. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We see Cayenne give Yuki her name, which is also interesting. Unless he's lying about why he called her Yuki, then the implication is that she has another secret name that neither she nor the audience knows about. We know her by the name that Cayenne gave her, but what name did her parents give her? But when Cayenne can't get Yuki to talk to him, he lures Kaname back on false pretenses. And I think it's deeply gross that it's implied Yuki's new first word is her brother-slash-future-lover's name. It's very meant-to-be in the grossest of fashions, and I wouldn't really mind it all that much if it didn't come with the implications of 
you know, Kaname grooming her as his child bride. Let me put it this way. I have a hard and fast rule when it comes to fictional relationships with considerable age gaps. Between you and me, I don't really give a fuck about an age gap most of the time. If the relationship isn't otherwise explicitly or implicitly abusive, I'll look past all kinds of shit. But like I said, I've got a very firm rule, and it's this. If you knew them when they were a baby, if you were literally there for their childhood, like an uncle, or a big brother, or gods forbid, a father figure, you can't fuck them. Period. I don't care if you want to. I don't care if they want you to. You can't fuck them if you knew them when they were in or barely out of diapers. Unfucking acceptable Get that shit all the way away from me. But Kaname just keeps coming around, giving her loving looks and hugs and shit all the way up from age 5 to age 15, and I am repulsed. It would be one thing if he dumped her on Cayenne, didn't see her for a decade, and then caught feelings for her later. It wouldn't be great, but it wouldn't be, like, sick. This, though, this boy has now raised his own bride, and I am fucking out. This is like Peter Baelish's wet dream. This makes me want to claw my eyes out. And then along comes Zero. He doesn't exactly take kindly to finding out that Konami is hanging around Cayenne and Yuki, and for once I think he's right on the money. He decries both Cayenne and Yuki as fucking nuts for letting Konami hang around, and while he's coming at this from a definitive place of prejudice... Yeah, Kaname is up to shit, and Cayenne and Yuki are both lost in the clouds. The degree to which Zero is shitty to Yuki, though, is awful. She can't be more than 11 here, and he's all like, don't you dare touch me. You're sullied by having touched a vampire. And, um, babe, you know vampires don't have cooties, right? You're gonna be fine. Be nicer to the little girl. I get that you're 13 or whatever, but Jesus. Blame Cayenne for letting this mess go on. Not Yuki. She's a child. It's not her fault. But in the next scene, Cayenne finally answers one of my ongoing questions. The night class, he explains, isn't meant to be the equivalent of high school or college. It is, quote, high-level research, because these vampires have all been around for a hell of a long time already, and don't actually need to do any classroom learning like children anymore. That's a great relief to me, honestly, but it does make things extra hilarious. There has already been the implication that the vampires are only here because Konami has told them to play along with this whole school facade. Now, come to find out, they're at a boarding school where they're not really actually learning anything in the first place, wearing uniforms like kids and shit, just because their vampire boss told them to go LARP as students because he's got a crush on a human. That is so degrading. It's hilarious. I am embarrassed for them. Truly. But Zero is far from embarrassed. He's losing his entire mind over the idea of vampires trying to coexist with humans. Konami says that he hopes the other vampires will, quote, become moderates. And as someone living in modern-day America, allow me to assure you that the last thing we need is more moderates in the world. And Zero's protests fall on deaf ears. Cayenne thanks Kaname for supporting his pacifist views, and of course, I don't think that's it at all. He's up to something, perhaps something bigger than Yuki, but perhaps not, and he's trying to stay close to her. I'd be very surprised if he actually gives a fifth of a fuck about Cross Academy. I think it's just a convenient setup that lets him keep an eye on his sister lover while he gets some ambiguous something done. Something perhaps related to the pureblood who went mysteriously missing after killing Zero's family, and who will reappear under the false identity Maria in the next episode. Flash forward, slightly, to when the vampires arrive at the school. 
Yuki goes looking for Kaname and finds the blonde with green eyes instead. He tries to dismiss her, but she's an obstinate little brat who goes inside to wait for him anyway. Lucky for her, Aido and the others aren't currently interested in eating her, though Kaname does end up saving her from someone before too long. And so we discover the thing that apparently drove a wedge between her and Kaname a while ago. She wakes that night in his bed and decides to spy on him. When she finds him drinking from Ruka, she's devastated. She's just barely emotionally intelligent enough to pick up on Ruka's feelings for Kaname, and so there's a sort of jealousy intermingling with her horror at seeing Kaname feed. And while I can't pretend to give a single fuck about Yuki's emotional experience here, I find her unsympathetically immature and very tiresome. This is actually an interesting addition to the world building. We've seen vampires lapping at each other's blood in the past, particularly during the birthday party scene, but this is a step beyond that. This appears to not be just an intimate sexual experience for Ruka and Kaname. This appears to be a genuine attempt at satiating his thirst, which implies that vampires can in fact drink from one another for sustenance. So what is up? How does that work? It's an ongoing question in vampire lore, one that too many creators don't really want to take much of a look at because the questions dive very quickly into very gross territory. I, though, am not at all afraid of grossing you all out, so here we go. What do vampires do with the blood that they drink? Blood is their food. Yes, I get that. But what do their bodies do with it? When a human eats, the food goes into the digestive system. Our bodies extract everything we can use as successfully as we're able, and then we excrete what we can't use. For a vampire, does blood work the same way? Do they perhaps digest blood cells and platelets and excrete the plasma? Do they actually only need the hemoglobin in red blood cells and they excrete the rest? Is their digestion much more efficient than ours, allowing them to digest everything without having to excrete anything at all? Or do they do something entirely different with the blood once it enters their mouths? Does it reach their stomach at all? Does it perhaps go directly into their veins? Seriously, I'm asking. Let me perhaps simplify the question. Do vampires need to have a specific amount of blood in their body, and they need only drink to make up for any that they lose? Or do vampires use blood as fuel, and so they constantly need more? Because if it's the former, well, that's certainly more sustainable, isn't it? It requires less drinking of humans, and less drinking in general. In the latter case, though, well, that plays very interestingly with this reveal that vampires can drink from one another. It brings up further questions, of course. Is the blood in a vampire's veins the same as or different from the blood in a human's veins? Can a vampire be sustained on a diet of blood drawn from vampiric veins? If so... Well, follow me for a moment. Our culture is increasingly doing friendly vampires. We've got Angel from Buffy, we've got Twilight's Cullens, we've got Blade and Darren Shan and Alexander Sterling and Mick St. John, and Skyrim's Serana and Supernatural's Lenore. We're doing friendly vampires to the point that, honestly, writing them as proper monsters is becoming kind of rare, and writing them as heroic, sympathetic protagonists or love interests is honestly getting pretty stale. But if vampires can feed on other vampires, or better yet, if pure-blood vampires alone can feed on other vampires, well, that gives us some very interesting and promising storytelling avenues, doesn't it? Picture this. Pure-blood vampires are increasingly rare. Humans are increasingly powerful. 
In the Vampire Knight universe, they have anti-vampire guns that can blast a vamp into dust with a single shot. One presumes that the Vampire Knight universe also has real-world modern weapons like chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, sonic and ultrasonic weapons, and the ability to create tailored bioweapons. And with humans being increasingly threatening, vampires might want to start playing nice. Now, Vampire Society in Vampire Night has a clear caste system. Purebloods are at the top, mindless level E's are at the bottom, and everyone else is somewhere in the middle. And, in having the most power and what seems to be a considerable amount of devotion from lower-tier vampires, well, it will be easy for purebloods and higher-tier vampires to convince humans that vampires aren't a threat won't it? We've already heard a bit of what I'm about to propose happening. We've already heard the Nightclass vampires claim that they're hardly the same species as their level E brethren. The Nightclass is painting themselves as the good guys, and the level E's as the threat. And if the purebloods don't even have to drink human blood at all, if they can survive on a diet of blood sucked from the veins of other vampires, then they're going to have the market cornered on the whole friendly neighborhood vampire thing, aren't they? If they can sustain themselves without ever drinking from a human, they can get a whole system going here. Forget the blood pills. By drinking from lower-level vampires, they never have to open a human vein themselves. Their hierarchy just has to get slightly harsher. The highest tier has their underlings feed them, and those vampires' lessers will feed them, and so on and so forth, all the way down until we hit the former humans and the level E's. Those vampires will have to feed on humans, demonizing themselves, and they will feed their creators, who get to pretend that there's some kind of grand difference between them and those awful human blood drinkers. They get to pretend that they are harmless. Now, given the existence of the blood pill in Vampire Night, I know that's not the story that they're telling here, but it's a fun alternative, I think. Anyway, back to what's actually happening. Zero finds Yuki asleep, having horrible dreams, and while he tries to cover her with a blanket, she mutters Kaname's name in her sleep. Kaname, always lurking about like a creep, begs a word of him, and the two of them depart, just in time for Yuki to peek open her eyes, see Kaname, and assume he was the one who put the blanket on her. And while I get the point of this misunderstanding, the show wants me to feel bad for Zero, having his kindness misattributed to the man he's so jealous of. And that shit doesn't remotely work on me. Zero needs to grow up. Stop trying to emotionally blackmail your little sister. If you don't think of her as a sister and instead see her as a romantic prospect, nut up and say something. Stop necking her, stop gaslighting her, and stop pinning her against walls and furniture and shit before I reach through this screen and slap the shit out of you. Outside, though, Kaname tries to get in one last metaphorical kick to Zero's shins. He tells Zero that the only reason Zero is alive is because of him. And the only reason he hasn't decided to kill him is so that Kaname will always know that Yuki has a devoted protector. And like, I hate to say it, bro, but Kaname, honey, you're really moving into triad territory here. Whether you realize what you're doing or not, you're setting up Zero as part of your relationship with Yuki, and while I am definitely into that, I don't know. I just wonder if this idiot understands what he's doing. If he does, more power to him. Or, so I would say, if he wasn't an abusive, manipulative creep going after a 15-year-old girl who I'm fairly sure is secretly his sister. And between you and me, right now I really hope the show doesn't go in the direction of confirming this relationship as a triad of sorts, because that shit would actually make me ship it even when I shouldn't. 
I am not too proud to admit that the siren song of incredibly tense and begrudging vampire Polly will trick me within the span of a heartbeat into forgetting that I don't actually like any of these three idiots. I know good and goddamn well where my weaknesses lie. But now we're on to the next episode. The whole of the night class is worried about Kaname, who has locked himself in his dorm room since his conversation with Zero at the end of the previous episode. And Kaname's withdrawal from the goings-on of the dorm leaves Ichijo temporarily in charge, just in time for his grandfather to pay a visit to the school. Ichijo is horrified. His grandfather is this enormous big shot both in terms of the vampire hierarchy and in terms of business. He doesn't know why his grandfather would come here, and none of the others have any good guesses either, but Ichijo fears that it's going to cause trouble for the dorm, which is quite unwelcome right now. In spite of Ichijo's protest, though, Kaname shows up to welcome Ichio when he arrives. The guy makes the most dramatic entrance I've ever fucking seen, going full Dracula in the funniest way, and quickly clarifies that there's a certain strain to his relationship with Kaname. Apparently, Kaname turned down Ichio's offer to be Kaname's guardian, and they haven't seen each other since. And I can't blame Kaname for turning this weirdo down. The dude's whole attitude toward him doesn't exactly give off guardian. The guy holds Kaname's hand and gushes about how he's the perfect picture of youth and beauty and power and shit, and um, I'll neglect to put a word to the vibe that's happening here, but it begins with a ped and ends with an erasti. Ichio then implies that he wants to drink Kaname's blood, and that apparently is the line. Ruka and Aido, both of whom I will remind you are definitely infatuated with Kaname themselves, put themselves between Kaname and this old creep that's hitting on him. And poor dumb Aido gets slapped by Kaname again for his audacity, despite the fact that the pathetic bastard was just trying to stand up for Kaname in the first place. I definitely worry that I like Ido more than I should, because while the show's attempts to make me feel bad for Zero aren't fucking working, there's no pretending that I'm not vastly more fond of Ido than I really should be. Anyway, Kaname apologizes for Ido's, let me check my notes, defense of his honor, and Ichio gets down on his knees to kiss Kaname's hand, cementing himself forever in my eyes as the biggest dork in the vampire world. Later that night, Kaname is again sulking in his bedroom when he senses Ruka lurking outside his door. He calls her in and offers to let him drink her blood again. Apparently, that instance that Yuki saw was the only time he's ever drank from her, and she's feeling all sad and rejected about it. This whole relationship she and Kaname have is some patriarchal nastiness, I've gotta say. And I feel bad for her. Imagine crying because some man doesn't want to drink your blood. Here's hoping she can find some self-respect sometime soon. Anyway, Ichio leaves the academy with some final words to Ichijo. Apparently, the whole point of Ichijo being at this school is to keep an eye on Kaname. Ichijo insists that he's loyal to his friend, and of course, Yuki chooses this tense moment to interrupt. She and Zero are here to take Ichio to Cayenne, but Yuki forgets what the fuck she's doing the moment she sees Kaname. She thanks him for covering her with that blanket in the previous episode, and Ruka looks on, sulking about playing second fiddle to some human girl. Later, Yuki walks in on Zero while he's once again sulking in the bathroom. She again assures him that she wasn't thinking of Kaname when he was drinking her blood, and she offers to let him drink again. When he's not enthused by the idea, she tries to scold him into it, and then he violently shoves her up against the wall. Somebody, please, please, smack this little brat for me. If anyone here needs to be put back in his place, it is Zero. He is always running around, pinning Yuki to shit, and here I am to say it again. That is your foster sister, dude. Quit it. You are nasty. So when Zero reveals that he's not going to drink her blood, Yuki runs away in a huff. 
And in comes Cayenne. He's got news for Zero. Apparently, Zero's got orders from the Hunter's Society, or whatever it's called, to track down a level E serial killer. I don't really think I fully understand Zero's relationship to the Hunter's Society right now. I would have thought he couldn't be a part of it now that he's turned, but apparently instead he's going to have to start working for them anyway. I hope I get some clarification on this, because it strikes me as odd the way I understand it right now. Because as Cayenne says, Zero doesn't have refusal rights to this assignment. And like, why? Why can't Zero say no? What would happen if he did? I don't get it, and I feel like it's something I really need to get. Anyway, the next day, Yuki follows Zero as he goes out on his mission. And, as it turns out, Shiki and Rima have been sent by the Vampire Senate to hunt the same Level E. While Zero confronts the Level E, Shiki and Rima discover Yuki lurking about. But forget Shiki and Rima and Yuki for a minute, because oh boy, does this Level E have some shit to say. I have no idea how accurate the translation of the dialogue is here, but it's a fucking doozy. Let me read it. I just couldn't help myself. I can't forget that sensation. You wouldn't understand what it feels like to pierce your fangs into a girl, to bite deep and hard. You just forget yourself and go into a trance and climax. Bitch, what? what? Why are you telling me that? Why do I need to know that? Why do you, why does the show, think I need to know that you came when you killed these bitches? That is not my business. I don't want to know that. Like, yeah, I get it. It's implied. But what the fuck, dude? I don't want to know about your dick. And Zero, endearing himself to me very slightly, shares the sentiment. Why are vampires like this? He asks. And yeah, babe, I've got the same question over here. So Zero tries to shoot the vampire, but he escapes. And Yuki runs into the building to try to help. But no sooner does she have the Artemis Rod out than Shiki steps in front of her. His vampire power is fucking wild. He nicks his index finger with his fang, letting out a little droplet of blood that turns into a fucking whip, and it's the silliest thing I've ever seen, and I fucking love it. It is so stupid, it's hilarious. A+. plus. But the vampire bops away again. And somehow he, like, tunnels into the ground and pops up from beneath Yuki. He grabs her by the ankle, tripping her and separating her from the rod. He's about to bite her when Zero shoots him in the shoulder, because of course Yuki can't actually save herself, and then blasts him into non-existence. Shiki and Rima show up then, the vampire's victim slung over Shiki's shoulder. She's still alive, albeit barely, and they decide that this is Yuki's problem now. And outside the building, there is a blackbird watching Zero. Through its eyes, some young vampire girl is spying, and she is... creepy. I don't like the way she talks. I don't like the way she moves. I don't like it. I don't like her. She creeps me out. She's got this Lolita thing going on, except that it's in this awful what-if-Humbert-wasn't-delusional sense, especially given the implication that this is an insanely old vampire playing at being a little girl, a la Supernatural's Lilith. Everything about this chick makes my fucking skin crawl, and she's barely been on screen for two seconds yet. But as the next episode proves, it's not going to get better from there, and I wonder if I'm alone in this. Does this type of character creep everyone else out as much as she disturbs me? Or is this just a me thing? It might just be a me thing. Either way, on to episode 9. We open on a flashback to the death of Zero's family. This woman, Shizuka, aka Maria, is bloodied and cradling a traumatized half-dead Zero in her arms in a sadistic twist on a pieta. 
They're tied, she says, by a bond that cannot be severed, and I've got to wonder. These two share some similarities, that's for sure. We'll get to her little butler or bodyguard or whatever later, don't think I didn't notice him, but right now I just want to look at Zero and Shizuka. I've been wondering how we're going to get around this, quote, all formerly human vampires turn into level E's eventually thing, and, well, Zero and Shizuka have a mild resemblance, don't they? White or silver hair, purple eyes. They're not related somehow, are they? Is that the unbreakable bond between them? A familial connection? If so, does that present some opportunity to avoid Zero's apparently inevitable descent into mindless bloodlust at some point in the future? Whatever the answer is, we find Yugari and Cayenne in the headmaster's office for a brief scene in which Yugari tells Cayenne that Shizuka is still alive. And the implication, of course, is that she's going to show back up in some capacity to finish ruining Zero's life. Bizarrely, the next scene is another inexplicable little sort of bonding moment between Ido and Yuki, and I just am baffled by Ido. He baffles me. He really does. Anyway, Kaname tells Ido and Yuki both off, and then Zero drags Yuki away, which, hey, at least that means they have something in common. Neither one of them likes Ido hanging out with their sister girlfriend. That's something, I suppose. Anyway, there seems to be some kind of a ball coming up, which is, well, ye gods, is this shit just mid-2000s teen girl catnip? So many Harry Potter fanfics from that era suddenly make sense to me in retrospect. This shit was what was in the water when everyone was writing these dramatic fics about transfer students falling in love with Draco Malfoy or Slytherin Harry or Tom Riddle at the Yule Bowl, complete with the love interest in question sometimes turning out to secretly be a vampire himself. You bet your ass that was all I was reading in my free time when I was 12, and that is precisely why I'm so confident in saying that if I had seen this show at that age, I would have been obsessed. I literally would not have talked about anything else. Not a single thing. But back to the show. Cayenne is explaining to Yuki that Zero must obey the Hunter Society, quote, in order for him to live as human. And again, I don't get it. But that doesn't matter, because we're moving on. It's transfer student time, and in comes our purple-eyed, purplish-haired girl, Maria. Yuki is tasked with showing her around campus, and Maria has big Carmilla energy every time she's anywhere near Yuki. The hugs, the playing with her hair, the little sapphic comments. If Maria weren't such a spooky little bitch, I might actually like her. But she is an undeniably spooky bitch. This girl literally floats around. Even the other vampires seem freaked the fuck out by it, and it gets worse when she implicitly threatens Ido for not referring to her as respectfully as she would like. Kaname calls her on it, and she floats over to him next, taking his hand and gazing into his eyes and apologizing with faux sincerity. And Ruka and Ido are horrified at her behavior toward their mutual crush. Not that Maria gives a fuck. She just floats away. And while Ruka just gets pissed that this weirdo is making moves on her not-boyfriend, Ido is the one who holds a grudge. And unlike everyone else in the show so far, he proves himself as rather intelligent after all. He knows that something is wrong with Maria, and he knows that it's got something to do with Shizuka, and I knew I liked him for some reason. Elsewhere, Yuki and Zero are having a chat. 
Yuki tells him that the girl he rescued has had her memories of the assault erased, and that she's going to be fine, but before I get into Zero's shitty response, let me take a moment to emphasize that this is not a happy ending for this unnamed girl. There's this book on trauma that I haven't read myself, but have been told is very good. It's called The Body Keeps Score, and the title is painfully accurate to the contents. Trauma does not live in your memories. Trauma lives in your body. It lives in the neural pathways of your brain. You cannot just erase the memory of a traumatic event and expect it to be completely fine. Trauma persists literally through generations. As far as science currently understands it, your body might literally suffer from trauma that happened to your ancestors, thanks to epigenetics. So erasing this girl's memory of her near-death experience is not the boon that Yuki seems to think it is. This girl was attacked, potentially sexually assaulted, and nearly killed. Her body will have flooded with adrenaline at the very least, and without her memory of what the hell happened to her, she will have no way of making sense of that experience. She will simply know that she was assaulted, and she won't know why, or how, or even when. Honestly, taking away her memories without her consent is a cruelty, not a mercy. Sure, take them away if that's what she asks for, but taking them away to preserve the masquerade? Maybe you could convince me that it serves the greater good, but it's a violation of her specifically, nevertheless. Yuki, though, does think that this is a great thing for the girl. She's pleased with the job well done, and she of course expects Zero to feel the same. As did I. But Zero, he just can't stop himself from being a complete and utter twat. He says that what happens to the girl has, quote, nothing to do with him, and that he didn't actually intend to save anyone, with the fun implication that he genuinely didn't care whether she lived or died. And that's villain shit. That utter lack of empathy right there, that's villainy. That's fundamentally what villainy is. Villainy is the clusterfuck of evil, cruel, or extremist actions that stem from a woeful lack of empathy, and Zero just said that shit. Even if he's just saying this shit to try to convince himself, and he doesn't really feel this way, that he says it at all is another reason I can't fucking stand him. Yuki, though, is worried about other things. She brings up the possibility of Zero just disappearing on her one of these days, taking off to hunt down the vampire that killed his family. If he does that, she's in quite the bind. Yugari and Zero have both told her, after all, that Zero's death is her burden to bear. If he goes rogue, she must carry the weight of killing him. And again, this girl is only 15, so this is a bunch of bullshit, and both of those two assholes can kick rocks. But before they can come to any kind of an understanding or anything like that, here comes Maria floating in. Zero looks horrified to see her, and he pulls the bloody rose gun without even hesitating. Yuki, idiot that she is, throws herself in front of Maria, and Zero backs off. But Yuki is nowhere near as uncomfortable and intimidated as she should be when Maria thanks her by stroking her neck and telling her that she surely has, quote, very tasty blood. And as Maria floats away, promising to become good friends with Yuki, Ido watches on. Thank goodness someone is keeping an eye on her. The next night, Maria comes to Kaname with a request. She claims that she can't sleep in the moon dorm and asks to be moved into the abandoned building that used to be the vampire dorm before they got moved to moon. To everyone's shock, including mine, Kaname agrees to this, and I would love to know what he's playing at here. I think he has a plan of some sort, but if he has some motivation that incorporates whatever Maria slash Shizuka is up to, I don't have an inkling what it could be. Elsewhere, Ido and Kane chat about Maria. 
Kane insists that she's just a weirdo, but Ido actually has a brain in that pretty little head of his. He knows sketchy when he sees it, thank goodness, and he knows that Maria has got something to do with Shizuka, though he doesn't know what. The following day, Maria makes more trouble. She's not supposed to be out during the day, but there she is anyway, prancing about in the middle of a crowd of day-class students. Ichijo is out there trying to corral her, but that only attracts even more attention, especially when Aido shows up too. And when Yuki tries to go scold Maria for being out during the day, Zero stops her and warns her to stay away from Maria. Aido, infinitely a creep, chooses that moment to roll up and pull Yuki into a hug, taunting her with the fact that he knows perfectly well how it's going to make the rest of her class hate and bully her for catching his attention in any capacity. And then Zero pulls Aido aside for a little chat, leaving Yuki to the not-so-tender mercies of her batshit-crazy peers. Zero and Aido have a chat about Shizuka, proving that they're more or less on the same page when it comes to the idea of, hey, Maria is probably Shizuka, right? But Aido doesn't like Zero, and so he's just casually dismissive, pointing out that no one except purebloods themselves actually know the full extent of their powers. That night, Ichijo and Kaname discuss what to do about Maria. Kaname seems to be playing chess by himself in this scene, which is a hilarious literalization of the metaphor here. I think what goes unspoken is that we're doing Kaname versus Shizuka, though the show hasn't admitted this to us yet. He talks about how he can't take a public stance on Maria, but that he and she are both gathering their pawns together here at the academy, which confirms for me that my instincts were right all along. Kaname is here with some secret purpose, and he's exactly as manipulative as I suspected. He's shown playing chess here because he's a chess master character, a la Dumbledore or Varys. Unless I'm very much mistaken, he's been setting pieces up for this season's endgame since before the show began, potentially since before he rescued Yuki in that snowstorm, and I look forward to seeing how this is going to turn out. Before our episode ends, though, we're back with Maria. Zero is so cute, she says to her blind butler, a third character who shares her and Zero's whitish hair and possibly purple eyes. So here's the thing. We know Zero's family supposedly died, right? But what if they didn't? Maybe some of them did, sure. Probably his parents, yes. But just as I kind of suspect that he might be related to Shizuka slash Maria, I think there's an even stronger likelihood that he's related to this blindfolded man. Look at the way the guy gasps when Maria says Zero's name. That is recognition right there. If nothing else, he does in fact know Zero. And knowing him, plus looking like him... It's not quite as straightforward as 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it's pretty damn close. So who is this guy? How is he related to Zero? And if he's like Zero's brother or something, what the fuck happened to him? How did he end up like this? And has he spent the past four years as in the dark about Zero's survival or existence as Zero seems to be regarding his? I am really looking forward to finding out. So... As I finish up this recording, I am preparing to sit down and watch the last four episodes of season one of Vampire Night. If you are interested in watching my reactions to those episodes, what you're going to want to do is head over to my Patreon, where for $5 per month, you get access to all of my full-length reaction videos released on a weekly basis. $10 patrons get those videos as soon as they're filmed. 
If you're interested in the Patreon, you should also know that $1 and up patrons all get access to my polls to help me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching on any given day. And if you're not interested in the Patreon at all, it would instead be appreciated if you could rate, review, or recommend the podcast. Every little bit helps and is incredibly appreciated as this show is no small task. But even if you can do any of that, I still very much appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you will join me again next week for the next batch of Vampire Night episodes. As always, thank you so much for listening.